0: You're listening to a Centro Church Podcast. Nice to see you. Nice to see this place comfortably full. If you don't know me, my name is Mark. If we haven't been introduced, pleased to meet you. I'm normally down at Collingwood Park, but this morning I'm here. And yeah. And if I have a, a bit of a twitch this morning, it's because I'm suffering from Olympic withdrawal. You know, I mean, I mean, give me some badminton people, you know. I want to watch the dressage and the I mean wasn't it great two weeks lockdown what lockdown <laughs> hey wasn't Nicola McDermott brilliant our silver medalist high jumper yeah I mean she I saw her interviewed three times and twice she talked about stadiums full of people worshipping Jesus that's brilliant hey yeah and and on her Instagram page, there's a brilliant statement. It's, it says, what would a surrendered life in sport look like? Wow. Cool. And, and I, I you know, beg the question, for me at any rate, I hope you too, what would a surrendered life in this city look like? What would my surrendered life look like? But more than that, what would all of our collective surrendered lives look like in this city? i tell you what it looks like. It looks like transformation. That's what it looks like. Did, you know, you have, you've gone quiet. Come on, you know, This is this is the part where you get excited. So, so far this year, we've talked about housing the Holy Spirit. You know, let's get, get the fire of the Holy Spirit in your bones. Then we talked about healthy homes, and we talked about solid foundations for our fam- families. And now it's time to look outward, to look towards the city. We've got our house in order. It's tight. Time to look towards the city and how we can bring the kingdom of God to our city. And we know, anyone who lives in Ipswich knows the city is not without its problems. But nevertheless, nevertheless, God can do something here. God can do something in our city, right? So often we talk about God having a dream for our lives. But don't you think God has a dream for geographical locations, geographical areas? What does he dream Over Ipswich. God is interested in cities. He thinks in terms of cities. Sure he's interested in each individual, but he also thinks in cities. And he has a plan for the reformation of our city. He does that from Wacal to Wolkaraka. That's sort of the extremities, the boundaries of sort of sort of. So you'll see on your seats a card that says the word nevertheless on it. And that's to do with our breakthrough offering that will take place on 29 August. We're calling it our breakthrough offering because that's what we want to see. We want to see breakthrough in our city. And Pastor Tim will talk a little bit more about that later. Now, that name has evolved, just so you're not confused. It was previously called vision offering or, or first fruits back in the day. And, and it was our practice then to give a week's wages to first fruits and, and to our vision offering. That was our practice, it was not a small thing there was Mark sitting in his office on the Sunday afternoon counting $40,000 in cash. Praise the living God for online banking is all I can say. (laughs) So, and the idea was that we did it at this time of year, at the beginning of the financial year, to ensure God's hand and his blessing on our family's finances for that financial year, which is a great idea to start off with a gift of faith, over our finances, yeah? Right now, we're going to go into this a little bit deeper. So are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Our text, our foundational text of this series appropriately comes from the book of Jeremiah and it's found in Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 6 to 9, and we're going to read this on the screen. It'll turn up on the screen there. Verse 6, nevertheless, say it with me. "'Nevertheless, the time will come when I will heal Jerusalem's wounds "'and give it prosperity and true peace. "'I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel and rebuild their towns. "'I will cleanse them of their sins against me "'and forgive all their sins of rebellion. "'Then this city will bring me joy.' And glory and honor before all the nations of the earth. The people of the world will see all the good I do for my people, and they will tremble with awe at the peace and prosperity I provide them. I provide for them. I want you to feel the heart of God in that passage. It's a passage that sets out his plan for reformation of that city. And in, in this series, we want to get a feel. For that, a feel for reformation, the reformation of Ipswich, and transform what is said there onto, transpose onto our city. That, that God will restore the fortunes of Ipswich and, and rebuild, in a sense, reform our town. Yeah? Can we do that? Can we start to feel the heart of God for the city? This is about healing our city's wounds. This is about our response, Centro Church's response to the problems of the city of Ipswich. This morning we're in Jeremiah, and I'm glad we're in Jeremiah because Jeremiah is a nevertheless kind of guy. He's wired that way. Jeremiah was born into Manasseh's Israel, King Manasseh. Manasseh was probably the worst king in Israel's history. If he's not, he's certainly in the running. Believe me, this is a tale of woe. His reign lasted for 55 years and he turned the temple of God into a shrine for cultic worship. He actually brought prostitution into the temple as a, as a required part of worship. He replaced all the priests with wizards and sorcerers from other nations. And he even placed his own son on the altar and following the rules of the cult he invented, burned his son alive as a sacrifice to a God of his own invention. We're talking about a warped, twisted individual here. The temple of Solomon that he had built, which is a picture of the presence of God in the midst of his people in Jerusalem, had turned into a place of murder and sex for pay under the leadership of Manasseh. He was succeeded by his son, Amon, who kept the whole sordid thing rolling along. But Amon only lasted two years before he was assassinated, which left his son, Josiah in the driving seat at eight years old, unscripted and naive. Nevertheless, God intervened. Against all the odds, there was actually an amazing reformation happened under Josiah. When he was 16, he started to seek God. And he starts leading the nation back to God. But he doesn't know a whole lot. He flushes out the cults and goes on a purge. And when he's 26, he decides to renovate Solomon's temple and, and give it, return it to its former glory. And while they're renovating the temple, they make a startling discovery. The priest Hilkiah, Jeremiah's father was named Hilkiah, might be the same one. The Jeremiah, uh, the Hilkiah finds the book of the law in some dusty old back room in the temple. Now, it was actually not the whole law, it was just... The book of Deuteronomy. But that was enough. So they blow the cobwebs off this book, and they start reading it, and they start putting into practice what it says, and they start reforming the nation. And something of a revival takes place, and, he, and Josiah the king starts to reform this nation from this old forgotten book that they just found by accident, maybe. Although, Judah falls quickly back into idolatry after Josiah's finished. This period spawns a host of prophets, not only Jeremiah, but also Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Daniel. And within it's 500 years before Jesus, but the, the writing has an implication for Jerusalem in that day, and it has a future implication for us. It has New Testament practices wired into it. When you look at the prophet Jeremiah, you have to understand that he's not like other prophets. We sometimes think that a prophet is like a fortune teller who who foretells future events. But Jeremiah's ministry basically boiled down to telling the people of Judah that from the king right down to the peasantry, that if they didn't repent, if they didn't turn from their sin and idolatry, Babylon would come in and take over, occupy them and whip them off into slavery. So God speaks to Jeremiah about the city of Jerusalem. He speaks about revival and restoration of how the city will be rebuilt after the captivity. He said that there would be restoration and transformation of the people. And in turn, that would turn into restoration and transformation of the cities. And that would be followed by establishing the kingdom. But that's New Testament. That's in the future. So Jeremiah takes a huge step of faith based on what God has said And he buys a block of land. He buys a block of land for the future. He buys a block of land based on what God had said. In Jeremiah 32, verse 9, it says, So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I don't know what that's worth on today's market. But Jeremiah purchases a field as a prophetic action, as a sign of his belief... In what's to come, that the Babylonian captivity would end, the people would come back, and the land would be restored. Jeremiah invests in the reformation that is to come. And that's what, in a sense, we're going to do as a church. We're going to invest in the reformation of Ipswich. Jeremiah invests in a field, and it looks a bit dodgy, it looks a bit silly, it looks like a questionable investment, but it's not. It's actually faith. It's faith that what God has said is going to happen will actually happen, and that's virtually what we'll do. We'll make gifts of faith for the redemption of individuals and for our city. Jeremiah buys a field that he would never see, never plant a grapevine on it, never pruned an olive tree, maybe never build a house, a field that he probably would never get to set foot on. So why would you do that? Because God had made a promise and Jeremiah believed it. And Jeremiah used his life as a prophecy. He did things that prophesied to the people around him what was happening. So he buys that field. He does something that requires God to be who God says he is. For God to come good on his promise. And God had said to him, I will redeem this city. So Jeremiah trusts it and he makes an act of faith in purchasing the field. It's one thing to believe God theoretically. It's one thing to entertain good ideas about God in your head. It's another thing to actually make a physical investment in a promise of God. Yeah? Yeah. Romans 4.16 tells us that the promise comes by faith. And faith needs an action to stimulate it. And Jeremiah takes pains to tell us about that that act of faith, telling us how how he bought it, how much it cost, how he raced the deed to the titles office or whatever they had in Jerusalem back then. What do you think people thought? How long was it since they'd actually seen a contract of sale? But Jeremiah makes an act of faith that makes a prophetic declaration to Jerusalem. He makes a questionable investment in enemy territory, that is a stimulating act of faith for redemption that is to follow. He made an investment in what God was doing. And what's God doing in our, in our city? He's winning back the life that He created for the world. It's a kind of life that, that never stops, and it's life of the fullest kind, and He's winning that back. And God is determined to pass that through our hands, through human hands. That's the way He's always worked. So, let me talk to you about the responsibility of reformation. I want to read a scripture from 2 Chronicles. It's probably a scripture that you all know. It's possibly even the dirty page in your Bible, if you still have a paper one. But let me give you the background to it. It, it's, it happens under King Solomon's reign. And what's happened is King Solomon has just built this temple, this wonderful temple as a monument to to Jehovah, and he opened. He has a big opening. He, he they sacrifice somewhere near two hundred thousand head of livestock. It's it's a big deal. And during the opening ceremony, the glory of God comes down. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And the glory of God, the thick, tangible, the cavort of God, His visible presence came into the temple and was so thick that the priests could not go in. I mean, that that's that's revival, isn't it? That's it. You know, we would think, we would think with our natural minds that here it is. This is revival. But a few verses later, God appears to Solomon in a dream and he talks about the responsibility of healing the land. One verse in 2nd Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, and most of you know what it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. At the point of the opening of the temple, it looked like, oh, the job's done. But no, God lays it out. If my people. So where does the responsibility lie? With us, yeah? His people. If His people, who are called by his name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Not just an observation about breakthrough. Sometimes we think that God can bring breakthrough in an instant and suddenly our lives are better for it. But it's not like that. The people of faith do the heavy lifting. Breakthrough happens by the hand of God. And then the people of faith... Do the heavy lifting of occupying that new territory. Hard work before and hard work after. Somebody asked Sean Bowles, what do you do to prepare for revival? And he said, get lots of sleep. Because it's hard work. Yeah? It's just a different sort of work. If you remember that the miracles that God did while Israel was in the wilderness, they were miracles to sustain Israel. Once they got into the promised land, the miracles changed. The miracles were to advance them. They had to look after sustaining themselves, but once they got into the promised land, the miracles that God did were to advance the kingdom, not to sustain them. It changed. People think maturity is relying on God less, but it's really relying on him for bigger things. So let's look at the qualities of reformers, you a reformer? Am I a reformer? I don't know. Let's have a look at the qualities and find out. You know, I was I was actually praying in in chapel this week, and and while I was standing there, I was going, something was going through my mind, and it was it was all of these the qualities of, of a reformer, and and I'm thinking to myself, one, two, hang on a minute, I've seen these somewhere, and. It took me back to a a passage from Proverbs where you actually get a ready-made sermon with four points, nicely set out, because Proverbs is is a book of wisdom. It was nice little chunks of wisdom, specially set out for young people, younger people. That doesn't exclude any of us. Us. (laughs) Yeah, Proverbs tells you all the formulas and Ecclesiastes tells you why they don't always work. So they balance each other out. So the Book of Proverbs, some wisdom from the Book of Proverbs, chapter thirty and verses twenty four to twenty eight says this Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Hyraxes are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. And a lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. Now, that's sort of not like a Middle Eastern wildlife review (laughs) with David Attenborough. (laughs) Hyraxes can be found in the crags of the rocks. (laughs) Four things small but wise. And they are the qualities of reformers as demonstrated to us by the animal kingdom. <laughs> Number one, ants. For something great to happen to, to, through us, something great has to happen in us. What do ants do? Ants, they store up their food in the summer. They prepare. They prepare. A prepared life is the first thing. If we want to break into a new place for God, we have to go to a new place with God. That means we ramp up the intensity of our devotional life. It, it calls for a ramping up. It, I mean, our, our devotional lives as they stand now haven't brought breakthrough in the city, have they? No. No. So that it stands to reason. Renewed people are used to renew people. The breadth of what we can do for God is linked to our intimacy with God. And all of that is linked to the lesson of the end, which is preparation. So preparation in this context is to plan what you need to do to go deeper with God. What you'll sacrifice, yes, it's not pretty, to move into a deeper place. A lot of Christians think it's unspiritual to prepare, that we should just be spontaneous. But you've got to remember that what is spontaneous to us was planned before the foundation of the world. Think about that. You see, revival is like war. People who are not ready are thrown into positions of responsibility out of necessity. There are promotions in the field, as it were. So get the jump on this. Start preparing your heart. Start building yourself into the next level. The next level of devotion in the quiet times leads to the next level Of bringing God's power in the times that are seen by everyone. Yeah? Get the jump on this. This is our spiritual formation, the abiding life. You can't expect someone who has no rhythm of what Jesus called abundant life, life with God and prayer, and a mind saturated in the scriptures on a regular basis, if not daily. Or church and life in community, you can't expect someone who has no idea of that to go out and influence culture, because the cultural pressure is directly opposite, directly opposed to that. And there's no silver bullet or killer app for this. It's something that we just have to actually do for ourselves, and it all comes down to doing the stuff that we've all been already been doing, just doing it on a on a on a greater basis, an expanded basis. Paul says. I labour until Christ is formed in you. So there's there's labour involved in this. There's hard work. As followers of Jesus, we're not only called to follow him in spirit, but we're called, called to continue his work on earth. And if we look at what Jesus did, we can find uh, some practical steps to just do what Jesus did. Jesus said the practices that he has taught his disciples, do them and you'll be like a man who is planted on a rock. So a house that is built on a rock. So we're formed by our habits, the things that we do, that do something to us. We become something under the cumulative effect of our regular habits over a lifetime. The ant teaches us this, the secret of preparation. That is the ant. The second thing, number two, the second little animal is called the hyraxes. You know what a hyrax is? You might have a version that says um, rock badgers or, or something, conies, rock rabbits, something like that. They're sort of they're shy, chubby little mammals, they are. And sort of like a rat, but cute, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so for the sake of the story, we'll go with hyraxes. And in the animal kingdom, cute usually means defenceless, and that's certainly the case. They're defenceless, and that's why they make their homes in the rocky crags of the mountain. They, have, they understand that they have to live under a protective covering. Remember Psalm 91? We talked about it a couple of months ago. When you abide under the shadow of Shaddai, you are hidden in the strength of God Most High. He's the hope that holds me and the stronghold to shelter me, the only God for me and my great confidence. We've got to be able to go out from this place, influence our city with the confidence that God is our covering, that we are protected. The confidence of the little hyraxes comes from the rocks, their protective covering. You know, I went down to Collingwood Park this morning when it was still foggy and sanitized the loose my habit, just couldn't help myself, had to go and do it. And driving back, I drove past that, the football field at Blackstone, it's down the bottom of the hill, close to that church, and uh, it's, it's now the, 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 field of, the home field of Blackstone Welsh, but back in the day, it used to be the home ground of the mighty coal stars. Anyone remember them? No, I didn't think you would. But that was the team I played for in the 70s as a young person through to my late Teens and um, and we we had we had such a strong team. You know, in the last two years, uh, we actually won two premierships, and in the last year, we won the premiership without conceding a goal. So it was it was pretty awesome. But we had two guys in the, who, who operated in the centre of our midfield. Now, one was a very skillful guy, an elegant player. He would he would be he would be he would provide our penetration. He was. He, he'd set up attacks. He'd um, he'd set up the forwards to shoot and that sort of thing. And he was he was quite skillful, but because of that, he was a target. So alongside him in our midfield, we placed another guy who was, uh, well, let's say less skillful, more of a thug. <laughs> yeah, and um, and he would he would he would protect him if somebody was roughing him up, well, this guy would go and his name was Neville, which is a good name for an enforcer. <laughs> and, he, and he went, he would go and, and, and have a quiet word with the guy who was roughing him up. But then, if that didn't stop him, he would go to physical lengths, let's say, let's just say that, let's, you know, let your imagination run wild. But what happened was, our, our skillful player had the covering and protection thug-like though it may have been, to do what he was supposed to do. So he operated under the cover of a protective presence that was with him all of the time. And that is the lesson of the hyrax. Operate under covering. So we have a life of preparation and understanding covering. So we move on to the insect species. Locusts, number three the locust has no king, yet they advance in ranks. The locust is is basically, he's a grasshopper, isn't he, really? At the end of the day, he's a grasshopper, a little thing that you could squish very easily in your hand if you if you so desired. But when they come in a swarm, when they come in their hundreds of thousands or even millions, they can devour a crop in a matter of minutes. They work in unity. Now, this proverb would come to life for the people of Israel later on when the Roman armies invaded, because that was how the Romans worked. They would come in unity. They would all stand shoulder to shoulder with their shields in front of them. The second row would stand shoulder to shoulder with their shields on top of them. And what happened was they were an impenetrable unit, they, there was no way in. There was shields. They could walk through arrows. They could walk through spears being, being thrown at them, all because of their unity, their alignment to one another. They worked in unity and they became an unstoppable force. See, being in right alignment in our faith community is paramount. When we're contending together for breakthrough things can get hairy. When we work together and give together, it multiplies our effectiveness. My breakthrough offering on its own, substantial as it might seem to me, isn't going to matter much in the city, but our collective giving. When we do something in unity, when we do something all together, it multiplies our effectiveness exponentially. When But when people move in unity, it's always opposed. There's an enemy to the people of God when they're unified. And he gives you a chance to create division. Don't take that chance. Believers have been lured into divisive chaos of the enemy ever since Jesus was here. And that creates a choice. Our society, our current world, is divided up into little groups and they're all saying, I'm right. And other groups are saying, well, we're not wrong just because you're right and you're barely right because we're right too and everybody wants to be right and we disagree over who's right. We can't give that mindset any place here. We cannot. The enemy's mission is to separate us out and turn us on one another like survivors of a plane crash on a desert island and there's only one box of chisels, you know? (laughs) Everybody fighting for possession of of the truth. Paul's rebuke to the Corinthians was was real. He said, some of you are followers of Paul and some of Apollos and some say you follow Jesus. Knock it off and stop attacking our wholeness. Our wholeness is important. The Greek word for the accuser which is Satan, the accuser of of the, the the Christians, the Greek word for that is categoris, which is where categories come from. His signature is, is all over this, but we have to say, wait a minute, I'm being called into divisions to stand as a representative of one of those categories. And I have to understand that is not my place to represent the categories. The testimony of the church on the earth, in this age and any other age should always be that people are confused by our oneness by our unity, by how close we are, by how tight we are by how we watch each other's back and how we stick together through anything and we have that oneness about us tomorrow or the next day you will hear something you'll hear something that will let you add to the division You'll, you, somebody will put something on the table you might hear a hear a, a, a sentence that says, the church should. At that point, stop. Stop yourself or stop them. Okay? Because that only leads to, that That sentence only leads to division. Don't touch it. Don't touch division, whatever you do. The Bible actually says that people who cause division, turn away. Turn away from them. So, yeah. So let's reinforce The lesson of the locust, who have no king, but they go forth in ranks. The lesson is unity. And so we come to the last little animal. The lizard, you can hold in your hand, but it's found in king's palaces. Almost a lifetime ago, I was in youth ministry. Actually, a lifetime, yeah. Um, All of my ministry philosophies and, and, and the way I ran youth was... Uh, it all came from this American youth pastor, a guy called Rick Gordon. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him, but I had his tapes. That's what you did. I had tapes, and I listened to them on my tape recorder, and I, I formed all these all these ideas of, of youth ministry. He was, he was my guru, and he, so he was also some kind of hero as well, which you can sort of have when you're in your 20s. As it happened, Rick and his wife, Cherie, were also singers. They... We were doing a tour of Australia back in the late 80s, and they came to the church where, where we were at. To my amazement, at the end of the service, the pastor asked me, Did I want to have Rick and Cherie back to our house for pizza? Well, I was like, The cat that got the cream. I couldn't believe my luck. This was amazing. My hero is coming to my house to eat pizza. Well, you got some kids from youth to come around and, and, and we had a great time, you know, it was there was you know great conversation, a lot of laughs, it was it was really good. Until they were getting ready to leave and Cherie decided that she needed to go to the loo before the trip home. So anyway, we, we gave her some directions and off she went. And a few minutes later I, I heard this this shriek like a banshee coming from the direction of our bathroom. And, and, and then there was since she called for Rick, she going Rick, Rick, Rick and so Rick disappeared to to investigate and and, and i couldn 't hear the whole conversation. It was muffled, but I did hear these people have lizards <laughs> and yeah it 's a fair cop, we do. We have geckos running around in our house we, we just we 've always had them they 're still there. That's just part of what I do. I show my grandkids the geckos, and that's just something we do. And anyway, Sheree decided that she would hang on for the trip home. <laughs> and off they went, they drove back to Brisbane. But I wasn't too disappointed, because I had a great story to tell, and I also had an almost watertight illustration for Proverbs 30, 28. <laughs> we do still have geckos in our house, and we have them there. Why? Because they perform a service. They eat the bugs. Our house is virtually bug-free because of a little tribe of geckos that runs around and nibbles and eats them up. And that's why they're in kings' palaces, because kings have bugs too that need to be nibbled and, and eaten and disposed of. It's because they perform a service. They eat insects. They keep our house and our palaces bug free and they're cute as well into the bargain. The idea behind this is found in in Proverbs 18 verse 16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Uh, The the gift that you have is the key to penetration of areas that only you can get to. See, all of us have gifts that people need. I don't mean spiritual gifts, this isn't for inside the church. Just something that you can do that will take you places outside of church. My instrument of penetration was the trombone. Over sitting in my office over there, I haven't played it for a couple of years, but in my in my twenties and my thirties, my trombone got me to places that I shouldn't have got to. It You know, and I wasn't a great player, just a little bit above average perhaps, but, you know, it got me into places that I I shouldn't have got to. It, It actually brought me before great men on occasion and great women as well. Each of us have something that we can do that people need that will get you into places that only you can get to. Learn the secret of the lizard. Your gift will make room for you and bring you into places that other people can't get to and that you wouldn't normally. So we have a life of preparation. Understand covering. Walk in unity and your gift makes room for you. Qualities of reformers. Okay, so we we started with Jeremiah, and we ended up here. And our city, on the surface of it, beneath that, that thin veneer of Ipswich, the enemy has engineered some pretty drastic things. We deal with some of them on a, on a daily basis, Hannah's house particularly. But we're praying, and we're building, and we're serving, and we're giving. And we, like Jeremiah, may not even see the reformation that comes. But we know it will come. See, Jeremiah challenges us about our priorities, about what's important to us. He challenges the space between a practical life and a faith-filled life, to move into that space, move towards the faith-filled life. There's something so true about Jeremiah and the whole concept of nevertheless, something that pushes us towards not settling for the comfortable. And the end result is what we see after faith redemption, reformation, revival, renewal, all our E words, all of them, they come after faith. You know, there's a curious illustration that. that, that sets this all up for us. It's not particularly stated in the Bible, but if you put all the pieces together, you'll know. That every day in the temple, the priest would go to this bag of incense and he would use a silver censer and he would fill it up with incense and he would throw it on the flame. And the fragrance of that incense would go throughout the temple, and it would tell the people in the temple that, yeah, it's time to worship God. But on the Day of Atonement, one day of the year, the priest took a bigger, much bigger gold censer, and he took a much bigger amount of incense, a generous amount of incense, and he threw it on the flame. And what happened was the fragrance of that would go right throughout the city, to all the extremities of Jerusalem, and it would signify to the people there that it's time to worship God. When the generous amount was thrown on the altar, on the flame, on the flame of sacrifice, the result was that it reached the whole city. And therein lies our illustration. When we sacrifice, when we scatter... The book of Proverbs tells us that to scatter. When we distribute generously, when we, when we give generously, then it reaches the whole city. doesn't come from any selfish motive, any motive from our own. It doesn't make us look better or accepted by another people. It's just what we do, how we give to God, no strings attached. And so this morning... I want you to consider what you'll do when it comes time to our breakthrough offering. Pastor Tim's going to talk a little bit more about it in a moment. But what you'll do, what can we do when we are generous, what it can take to reach the extremities of our city that's in trouble, but nevertheless, God will reform it. Amen? Why don't we pray? Father God, we thank you that, that... Ipswich is in your heart. Ipswich is in your plans. The people are known to you. You know the number of hairs on their head, Lord God, that you know each one intimately and individually. And, Father, we just pray for our part in that that reformation that you want to bring to our city. We pray for that. We pray over what we can give, what we can do, where you might take us, who we might meet. We pray for all the people, Lord God, who are in this city today, sitting in coffee shops and their lounge rooms or at breakfast tables. We pray for them, Lord God, that we will see them in our churches, in here and in Collingwood Park. We just pray over that and we commit them to you. Lord God, I commit each one of us, Lord God, to you this morning, that we will live prepared lives, Lord God, that we will... Know the value of your covering, Lord God, that we will walk in unity, Lord God, and that we will use our gifts to penetrate areas of society that we haven't previously touched. In Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast.